Playback. Hey guys, you're watching Panatsu, or you're listening to Panatsu on iTunes, um, and as always, we want to thank you, and we especially want to thank you for keeping uh, Fanatsu free and available for the masses. Um, if you don't already know, we have the Patreon campaign going on right now. Um, we have we launched a three-tier program, um, and it's been pretty consistent, going pretty well. Um, so we have Radical Readings at Tier 2. Um, these are all exclusive, by the way. Um, and that's uh, if you uh, pledge $10 a month. Um, and really, like, how many coffees is that in a month? Yeah. Like, Thank goodness. Like, dos patrices. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's the, the cost is minimal. Yeah. We Get Kickstarters them. instead of Red Bulls. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know if I condone that. But, <laughs> but yeah, so at, there, there's three tiers, right? So you get Radical Readings and Radical History, which Maget is prepping for um, right now. And uh, you can access all of those by uh, becoming a patron on patreon.com uh, slash Banatsu. Um, and that's it. You guys know I hate talking about money. Um, and we'll get right into it. Uh, you're actually on independent Guam. Is that okay? Oh, shit. Sure, that's not okay. Yeah, let's yeah. go back. You should follow us on Fanatsu on Facebook page. So, save, save the caption. Oh, there it is right there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was searching for the live stream. Okay, okay. Gotcha. Sorry. I was, I was yeah. looking for Yokoi and Jigo instead of Talafofo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and and the purpose of Fanatsu? Do we need to do that now that we're back live? I guess so. Yeah. All right. Do so you want me to do it? Because I I, I sense <laughs> the cringe. It. I sense the like, <laughs> the muta. <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Remember that Fanatsu is only possible because of people like yourselves who support us. And remember that the more support we get, the nicer clothes we get, mm -hmm. the nicer mics we get, the nicer cameras we get. And it all makes it easier on your eyes and ears. Um, but remember that you can sign up on Patreon for any of these, the Hatsuhugo or Tulu sort of tiers. And... At the Hatsa level, you got the podcast, can download it. Now, the live stream is always free so that you can get the content. But the Hugwa and the Tulu levels, those are sort of exclusive content. I'm looking forward to sharing the Radical History discussion today. Um, for those of you that are fans of the... So the Radical History portion is about different parts of Chamorro history which are radical or revolutionary in nature. Some of which you won't find in any books. 
or any sort of text, any articles like that. So some of these are things that I've collected through my years of research. Um, some of them are based on theories and ideas that are out there. But if you're interested in that sort of stuff, sign up for the Hugua level. In honor of, uh, for those of you who are tomorrow nerds out there, uh, video game nerds, the game Assassin's Creed Odyssey is coming out next week. And so my radical history uh, segment today is inspired by sort of ancient Greece, Spartans, and so on. And so Tulu, the radical readings, that's the highest level. And so um, today, if you, if you have the Tulu level, then you'll be learning about James Baldwin and one of his writings, James Baldwin, the always quotable, very um, sort of a, a very deep thinker, a very sort of a beautiful writer. And so we'll be connecting one of his writings to sort of the Chamorro experience. And so Mungumalefa put Esti, Fanatsu, Patreon. All right, Sidzus Masi. Yeah, awesome. And uh, Cesar Smasi to uh, Michael Mendiolo Garcia, who uh, he boosted his pledge on Patreon. He was supporting us for the past month, and uh, he recently signed up to be on the uh, the Hula, or no, the Tulu tier. E Biba yeah, so all the way in San Diego, I believe. So, yeah. With that being said, uh, we'll go into uh, some ideas from from the presentation. Were you able to to? to no, I flew in. I flew in Thursday night. I did not have a chance to watch it. Um, but I was very... So did you give the presentation? I did. On Carlos Titano or on... No, God no. Um, his son uh, did uh, an excellent job. Okay. I don't think there, there would, would have been anyone else to uh, do Carlos Titano's mm. history justice aside from his son. He was a very good speaker. Mm. And um, he very... He, um, oh, man. The way he explained uh, the process of the Organic Act and the, the, the things that led up to that mm. it was very visceral. You know, um, so Cezus Masi to you, to you as well. Everyone gets Cezus Masi's today. Yeah. So, yeah. Beepa, mega Cezus Masi Gwini. But it's important to remember that history, like the organic duct. It's important to remember the the period from after World War II to the signing of the organic duct. Uh, Cecilia Titano Paris once referred to that as kind of a lost time. These are incredibly consequential years. But we instead we get Liberation Day and then suddenly six years disappear and we have the Organic Act being signed. What happened in those six years? That's when thousands of Chamorros get kicked off their land. It is also a time when Chamorros are eager. That's also the time when Chamorros decide that they want to suddenly be called Guamanians now. Um, it's a time when a lot of Chamorros leave to go to the States because they can't return to their farms. They've lost their land. The island is totally different. Some of them are even worried that Guam will get attacked again because there's so much military on the island now. And so it's an incredibly traumatic time, and a lot of people don't talk about it. Um, and it's important to remember what Chamorros were going through at that time, and then even the Guam Congress that Carlos Titano was a member of. What, what, so they were people that were elected but had no power. They advised the Navy governor. But Chamor that didn't stop Chamorros from approaching them and asking them for help and begging them for help and saying, please, you're our leaders. Aren't you supposed to be able to do something to protect us? My cousin lost his land. I'm going to lose my land. Like, what are we going to do? The war's over. Why are they still taking our lands? And so it's, uh, it's important to remember that time because once the Organic Act is signed, most Chamorros forget about it. And they just say, well, it was the time of trouble that we went through to basically become Americans. And so it's good to remember the Organic Act, how it, the sort of the trauma that was around when it was passed, 
because it's important to help you remember that sort of the the colonial issue isn't over. Mm -hmm. Guam remains a colony. Um, It's just, I guess, a friendlier colony. Friendlier, sort of uh, more white picket fenced colony than than it was before, but still a colony. Mm. Yeah, and you know, one of the the things that I contributed as far as research goes to the presentation was the idea that citizenship um, is really a means of participation in a political system, right? And the most common way to do that is through a vote, you know? And uh, obviously we do not vote for uh, the President of the United States and we also have no representation uh, or at least meaningful representation in Congress as well. So, you know, it really drives home the, the fact that we are second-class citizens. And um, I don't know, there, there was someone we met in New York who talked about how like uh, people in Washington, D.C. actually would be more along the lines of second-class citizens, and we are more like third-class citizens mm-hmm. in that That's regard. a good way of putting it. Yeah. People in Washington, D.C. get... Uh, they get marginal representation. They get electoral college votes. They're, they get to say that they can vote for president, but they still lack uh, congressional representation. Yeah. And unlike the territories, they do get taxed. Mm. They get taxed sort of directly. Um, oh, sorry, we have a comment. We have a comment. Anyways, I'm just checking that out. But um, yeah, I mean, a lot of this resonates with me because I was just in the States... Uh, interviewing people who were eager to talk about sort of their experiences in the 40s and then when they moved out to the States, people that have been in the States for like 60 years. So Chamorros that have been out there for a really long time um, that want to talk and share their stories and stuff like that. Um, But the speaking, what you said about citizenship being sort of like the foundation for participation, Mm -hmm. right? That's essential. We have to remember that, that citizenship, we oftentimes think about citizenship as this thing that we're so afraid to lose. Like if we decolonize, we would lose it. And then tomorrow's fought so hard to get it. And there's this idea that everybody in the world wants to become a U.S. citizen and so on and stuff like that. And we don't really think about, well, what is citizenship? What is it supposed to be? And if you have it, but you don't get to engage in it, then what is its value? I mean, you. What is the purpose of it, really? Um, if you and it's very fascinating because if you look at what the U.S. Navy and the federal government was saying about why Chamorros can't have their own government before World War II, it's because they would say we're too primitive or too uncivilized to understand U.S. citizenship and how to be a good U.S. citizen and what it means to participate in a democracy. Lanya, someone should tell the United States that they don't know what the fuck they're doing with citizenship if they gave it to a bunch of people and then they withhold the privileges of it. Mm. I think they're doing citizenship wrong. Right. I don't know, but what do I know? I'm just a bearded guy that lives in an yeah, island yeah. in the Pacific. Yeah. Um, yeah, what do I know compared to all those white slave-owning guys? <laughs> well, you know, like... One of the things, like, with the Organic Act, um, they... Or so, so Carlos Tatino's son, he talked about how, um, like, the real, the incentive for the U.S. granting um, uh, Chamorro citizenship or native inhabitants citizenship was so they can justify the taking of land because under the Treaty of Paris, they couldn't do that uh, to um, peoples who were not uh, citizens of their country, 
right? So or yeah, eminent domain. Eminent domain. So the there's a, the procedure for taking land. So if if you haven't, we talked about it uh, as as one of the radical readings before. Mike Phillips's article, Land, in uh, Kinelamten Politikat, in one of the the Blue Haleta book, because it has a really great sequence where it talks about the land takings in the Organic Act. And it has, and it references hearings about the Guam land issue after World War II, because the military, when it was taking over Guam, it moved in and it took a bunch of land, which really didn't have the right to take, and then it just kind of stayed. And they asked military leaders, was it legal the way that you took the land from these people? And the military acknowledged and said, it's not legal, but it, it was a war. Everything is legal in war. And then that was just it. And so the issue of the, the way that, and then even after the war, when the Navy kept saying that they were taking land because eminent domain allowed them to take land, that wasn't legally true. And so the Organic Act solves that problem. Mm. We have to remember that this was a time when the U.S. was seeking to basically become the most powerful country in the world and wanted to argue that everybody should look up to it and, and so on. And so something like that really mattered, where if the Russians... Or if other countries could basically say, look at America and what they're doing to these, their, their, their primitive peoples they have under their care. Don't follow them. Don't look up to them. And so when Russia did criticize the United States, the United States knew it had to do something to cover its dogon. And the Organic Act was part of that. It doesn't work like that now because now you got Trump. You're going to laugh at Trump and he doesn't even understand what's happening to him. Oh, God, not not yeah. until he gets that cheeseburger IV in his system, then he then he starts to, anyways, dispense it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I guess one of the other things um, that you know, in in the lead up to this episode, right? You had just come back from the continental U.S., mm. as it were. Um, so maybe you can talk about your experiences there. And I mean, what has U.S. citizenship afforded you? You know, oh. as a person who travels quite frequently. Oh well. U.S. citizenship is, is an interesting sort of thing because being from Guam, if you go into other places in the world, they see your passport and they see your presence from Guam as usually being connected to the United States and not a big deal. But when you go to the United States, that's when people don't seem to know where you belong or what you are. So I'll give you a very good example because it happened to me just two weeks ago when I was in the States. And so this is a... This is a Guam driver's license, right? I'm covering my stuff so you can't steal my identity. It's <laughs> what a Guam driver's license looks like, okay? I do not know what driver's license look like in the 50 states. I don't know. Maybe they're printed on bald eagle testicles or something like that. I don't know. But when I went to go rent a car with my Guam driver's license, in the east coast of the United States, I had trouble. First of all, I couldn't rent one online because... Every time I would say Guam in the state category, Guam wasn't there. So I'd have to do Guam in the foreign country category, which meant they would say, we can't rent to you because you're foreign. So I go into, I finally get Enterprise to rent to me, to give me a confirmation. I go in there and I show my license and the girl at the counter says, oh, this is a Guam driver's license. And I was like, yes, it's a, it's a Guam driver's license. And then she's like, oh, um, hold on. Uh, I know that you are from the United States, but I don't think my boss knows. Please wait here. <laughs> and so she takes my license and she runs into the back room. And then I'm just kind of like, oh, fuck. 
not again. This always happens to me. I have so many random experiences like this, and most people from Guam do, where sort of you go to the States and you're not included, and you find that a random bureaucrat or service person can deny you a place in the United States. So she brings back her boss, and her boss is kind of like, I'm sorry, sir, we can't rent to you. And I'm like, what? I, I have a reservation online. And they're like, yeah, but you have a foreign passport. And I was like, so? And he's like, yeah, no, Guam is not a part of the United States. And I was like, well, technically it's a territory of the United States. And he's like, yeah, I don't, we don't deal with territories here. Um, we don't really know much about territories. And I'm like, look, look, Guam is a territory. It's an unincorporated territory of the United States. It's a possession of the United States. We have U.S. citizenship there. We speak English. We watch Netflix and we chill sometimes. And so, so you should rent me a car. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any sort of like documentation that says that Guam is a part of the United States? And I'm like, I can Google it. I can show you a PDF of the Treaty of Paris, which says that Guam is, becomes a possession of the United States. Will that do? And this guy is like, you know, sir, I'm sorry, we're not really uh, trained to deal with treaties here at Enterprise. Um, so I, I wouldn't really be qualified to look at a treaty and tell you. And I'm like, well, you want evidence. What, what am I supposed to do? And he's just like, look, sir. And I'm like, look, let me talk to your boss. And so... The next level, another, another guy comes over, another guy comes over and starts talking to me and he is like, and I was, and they, they explained the situation, he's like, oh, of course we can rent to this guy, of course we can, Guam, my, my cousin was stationed in Guam, sir, thank you for your service. And I'm like, <laughs> I was really pissed off, but I took it, I was like, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Can, can I get a car now? <laughs> so it had nothing to do with the fact that you have a really large beard. No, 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 no. I oh, think, wow. I mean, I think in some places in the United States, this gets me points, really. I'm like, oh. like a cousin of the Duck Dynasty guys or something like that. Nice. <laughs> but um, wait, so how many people from Guam have had experiences like that? Whether just a maybe maybe not as crazy as mine, maybe not as Kafkaesque as mine, but just interacting with somebody that has no idea that you exist, right? Or somebody who can take away your relationship to the United States, like like just with their ignorance, right? That they have the power to deny you something because you come from a territory, you come from a colony, and the that is the relationship to the United States. I wrote an entire dissertation on this. That's the relationship to the United States. It's not that there's this issue where, oh, only tellers and enterprise are jerks, and that's why. Or, or those people that you can't get stuff from on Amazon or eBay, they're just jerks. They don't know about Guam. No. It's part of a larger structure, a relationship, where Guam belongs to the United States. And you're not a full part of it which means even if you're a citizen, your citizenship itself in the islands can be turned on and off. Your connection to the United States can be turned on and off by Congress, just as your connection to the United States can be turned on and off when you want to rent a car. 
and they don't recognize your driver's license. And so this is important. This is important because we all have these experiences and too often people push it aside and think it's just because that person was a jerk or that person didn't know me or they don't know us. And if they just knew us, they just knew us, then everything would be okay. That's not it. The structure of the relationship is that you belong to the United States. You can have US citizenship, it doesn't change it. You could have, you could have a thousand organic acts, doesn't change it. And so that's why decolonization is necessary to get you to a point where you have a relationship with the world and if the United States, which is defined in some way, it's defined. Hmm. So maybe let's, let's talk about like um, a constitution. I know this was an issue, or it's, it is an issue that comes up um, every once in a while, but um, people chiming in who may be unfamiliar with the topic of decolonization or may feel like they know it all. You know, they always say like, oh, the way forward is for Guam to draft its own constitution. That's how we decolonize. But I mean, like, maybe you can address some of the, the many oh. issues with that. So just, just, just quickly, the constitutional argument is problematic because just as you were saying, what is citizenship? What is a constitution? A constitution is supposed to be a document which expresses the will, the desires of a people, of a community for what they want their government what they want their society to look like, what they want their ideals, their philosophy to be. And so constitutions are not supposed to have outside interference, right? And so, for example, let's take it back to the start of the United States. Imagine what it would be like if the United States, when they were fighting, when they got their independence from Britain, and then they were writing a constitution and the British came over and said, oh, looks like you guys are doing great with that constitution, but remember, we have to approve it first. Remember, we got to approve it first as your colonizers. We got to look, excuse me, British accent, as your colonizers. Deputy, deputy, attendant now nods and I. Let's, we'll do some British Chamorro there. I've met a couple of British Chamorros before. But um, wouldn't that be ridiculous? What kind of story would America have if, the, if the, the founding fathers signed the Constitution and then sent it off to England and had the British look at it, redline it, take stuff out, add stuff in, and send it back and mm -hmm. say, here's your Constitution? That's why you have to decide your political status before you write a Constitution. Because the U.S. has already said that, that, that Guam and the Virgin Islands can write their own constitutions. Okay. But when you're done, you submit it to the U.S. Congress, and then they can change it if they want to. Mm -hmm. And they approve it, not you. And so for all of the talk about it, it would just be an or another organic act. That's all it would really be. It wouldn't have any more substance or structure than the organic act does because it's not something that comes from the people and it's not decided upon by the people. We approve it here and then the U.S. Congress approves it and they can change it however they want to. And I always bring up the example of the Virgin Islands because I met with some people that are from the Virgin Islands while I, I was out in the States and they don't, you know, they're stuck because they chose the constitutional route mm -hmm. and they've tried to submit constitutions to the U.S. Uh, government and it always gets kicked back and everything is changed because the federal government says, look, you cannot have a constitution which does anything that our constitution doesn't. 
So whatever we, however the U.S. lives, your constitution has to be within mm. our constitution. It cannot go beyond it. So the, the example I always give is that the Virgin Islands, and this is something that even Guam wanted to do before, for their constitutions, they wanted to make it so that you had to live, let's say, 20 years mm -hmm. in, in, in the Virgin Islands before you could run for governor. And the U.S. Department of Justice tore that out and said, that's unconstitutional, you can't have this in your constitution. They made it because they didn't want people coming from the states and then staying in the Virgin Islands for a year and then suddenly running for their their legislature there or running for governor. They didn't like that feeling that people from the states could just come in and become politicians and leaders on the island even if they didn't have any connection. So they tried to create a way which wasn't racially discriminatory, racially discriminatory, but was about time, that you had to spend enough time there, be a resident long enough to show that your connection there, and the Department of Justice said, nope, this is unconstitutional. And so the constitutional route is, is a trap. It just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a midway point meant to avoid the tough issue of political status. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So self-determination first, sovereignty second. Yeah. Like that's the, the process, right? Yeah. I mean, the, when I was in the States, I talked to one person in the federal government who, who said the, the Native Americans have sovereignty until the federal government says they don't have sovereignty. Mm. So basically, they say that they're sovereign, but the federal government gets to decide where their sovereignty ends. And so that's why you want to go through that process of decolonization mm. where you could define your, your place even if you want to become part of or connected to the United States, define your relationship so you have a better chance to, to protect yourself, better gotcha. chance to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, thinking about Native, Native Americans, right? Um, one of the issues that's really becoming more apparent on social media is um, the issue of missing indigenous women. I don't know if you've seen a couple mm -hmm. of the short films, documentaries mm -hmm. that have come out recently. So it's, I don't know, man, it's mind blowing. You know, that this is a phenomenon that occurs all across Canada and many parts of the United States, and um, I'm pretty sure in South America as well, you know? Um, but yeah. It is. It's, in my opinion, if we take a look at sort of how modern nation states come about, a lot of it has to do with indigenous people um, being pushed to the side mm. and becoming like the excess of the nation. Mm. And so they're more expendable, they're more disposable, they matter less. And we see that in the United States. There's sort of like an incentive not to fund like uh, police departments in reservations uh, to look into these crimes. And, um, you know, it's all like it's procedural. It's systemic. Um, the ways that uh, Native peoples are, are sort of erased, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's in any system, right? Think, think about how before... Um, what was what was that thing before? If a if a white woman goes into the Caribbean and she disappears, the media in the United mm. States goes crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If a if a black woman got lost in the Caribbean, there might be a little bit of buzz, but uh, if an if an indigenous and Native American woman, then the, it matters even less. Mm. And part of that has to do with the fact that the way that we are attached to the United States, right? The way indigenous people are attached to the nation, is that you were there before you were displaced to create the nation and you because and you are always disappearing 
that idea that indigenous people are always fading away. They're losing their culture. They're losing everything. They're dying out. Mm. And so in a way, that's why modern systems, if indigenous people are suffering or disappearing, yeah, that's what they've always done. I mean, mm. they're dying out. Yeah. They kind of have to die out to make way for the nation to exist. Yeah. Now, how about, what if like, how would we contextualize that, you know, into a, a Guahan setting, you know, like, I don't know. Every year, I mean, there is... Oh, are we good? Oh, yeah. We got in time? Okay, yeah. But I mean, like, you know, funding, obviously, is a perpetual issue. Like, funding for, for the public hospital, for education. Um, and these are things, these are funds that we're supposed to be, that we should be receiving from the United States, but uh, they're chronically underfunded. Mm-hmm. And because of that, uh, you know, people die. People, our children are undereducated. Um and we have one of the highest rates of poverty per capita, you know, like there's sort of an, there isn't an incentive for the United States to really want to fund our public services. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, and uh, there are so many ways that you can approach that issue. You could approach it, I mean, from the perspective of what is the value to the United States Mm -hmm. of Guam? And then it's, it's military, right? So the military's interests will always override anything else. So Guam can always receive things as long as it doesn't conflict with military interests, with the strategic interests, right? So that's why, for example, um, when the CNMI negotiated their covenant, they were able to control their own immigration for a time. When Guam, if Guam negotiated its own sort of new status or pseudo status, it probably couldn't get control over immigration mm. just because of the strategic importance of it. And then look at now with the H2, which the H2B visas and so on, um, sort of choking them off. And why? You know, because of the strategic importance of the island and because of the change in attitudes in the government in the United States, in the Pentagon, seeing things very differently now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is really just tied to, and my apologies to those of you on Guam who are Republicans, but what do you really have in common with Republicans in the United States? Mm-hmm. Like, um, if you are from a territory, chances are good that you, sh- the Democrats will treat the territories better in terms of giving them things. Because what we see under Republicans, under Trump and the Republican-held Congress is that Guam gets less funding for education, less funding for social programs, more funding for what? Military buildup. Mm-hmm. More funding for military buildup. Trump yeah. and the Congress shot that through the roof. And so, and so that's, you have to think about where the priorities are in the United States. <laughs> Sorry, we have a question, have a question. from Guam Oh. Uh, so they said, what I hear a lot about Guam independence or free association is quote having a seat at the table mm-hmm. but no specifics are really talked about is there a running list that we can look at i a running list of examples of how of the proverbial table we're sure, sitting yeah. okay so i guess could be a wood table could be a fiesta table <laughs> mahogany i like mahogany <laughs> an okay. efit table nice sheen um so I mean, you know, when you okay, so when we're talking about like uh, sovereignty and nation states, you know, um, countries uh, they they communicate uh, with other governments, other countries' governments. They don't talk to the individuals; they talk to the government that represents um, supposedly the individual people themselves. Um, 
and we don't have that like if these country leaders are all at a table what we mean is that as a territory we're on a footstool or something mm. maybe not even in not the even room. in the not even in the room yeah. so and the reason is because uh we we don't have a leader who represents us as an island you know um so the perfect yeah. example of that is let's say you're for the military buildup you're against the military buildup you think the buildup is awesome you hate the buildup whatever you feel the problem is that when the buildup was t- negotiated there was representatives of the united states and of japan in the room mm-hmm. talking about guam's future talking about what guam can handle what it can't handle how much troops guam should get where they should build this where they should build that no one from guam was there later on they may have asked the congresswoman her thoughts but she wasn't at the table making any decisions they may have asked the government and the government of guam later and so as a territory now as manny said you don't even have that minimum that minimum amount where you you are part of the discussion you may not be the most powerful voice in the discussion but you don't even get that minimum amount of respect where you are invited to the discussion mm. because the assumption is you belong to the United States so when the United States speaks it speaks for you mm-hmm. and so independence and free association would both allow for a form of representation so that Guam would be represented even if you were a state at least you would have some representation in the United States itself yeah. You know, I don't know. That question brought me back to my experience in Geneva um because uh, one of the exercises for the fellowship was that um each of us fellows would have to talk to our country desk officers, right? So uh, the people from French Guiana, oh I know. I guess I share a similarity with them as well. So French the fellow from French Guiana had to speak to the French um ambassador, right? And then but if you think of uh, uh countries that are sovereign, so uh, you have Suriname uh my friend from Suriname had to go and seek out uh her Suriname ambassador to the UN human rights bodies um and you know when it came to me like one of my fellows was like uh so uh where's uh, Guam's country desk officer and I was like oh you mean the United States and <laughs> you know so i i did end up setting the setting up a meeting with the US um ambassador uh for the human rights issues right um and you know she basically told me straight up like uh Asia Pacific is not a priority for us um when it comes to indigenous uh, people's issues um really uh the focus is on native americans and the people within the continental US and I was like what about moving forward like moving forward is there a possibility that there might be more uh UN representation in Asia Pacific either through like a field office or something and she she was just like flat out like no like that's that's not realistic it's not logical like from a US perspective mm. so we're kind of we're caught in this uh, I'm going to say it again but like a fourth space right because like there there's UN offices in Asia there's UN offices in the Pacific in Fiji um and there's an office in Bangkok and really like none of those um handle our issues um you know so even though like the issues of indigenous peoples in the pacific i.e. guam and uh maybe native hawaiians probably get more representation right like they've been engaging in un bodies like yeah for lo- for the longest time but um but as far as guam goes man uh we're we're kind of isolated from uh us representation no i 
I've told this story on the podcast before and I'll tell it again. It comes from a, a previous governor of Guam, Felix Camacho, where on Guam we think of ourselves as being better oftentimes than the other islands in Micronesia because we have more American stuff, right? We have We've got better aircon, we have faster internet, um, all sorts of stuff like that, right? But when we go internationally and nationally sometimes, the smaller islands in Micronesia sometimes actually have more power and more of a mm -hmm. presence than we do. And so F Governor Felix Camacho, former governor, he shared the story with me about when he traveled to the States for a coral reef conference. And because he came from a territory and he was a governor, he had to pay for his own flight. He had to get his own hotel. He had to take care of his own transportation. And so according to him, he took the subway and he got lost and he was so like out of it because, you know, he couldn't find his way around D.C. And so... He went, he got to the conference at this fancy hotel and all of the other Micronesian presidents are there and he's the governor from Guam. And at the end of it, he left the hotel and he had to then f take the subway back to his, back to his hotel. And one of the presidents of Micronesia rolls up in this black Escalade, rolls down the window and says, Hey Felix, what are you doing? And he's like, wow, that's a nice ride. Yeah. And then the, 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 the Micronesian leader is like, this is the benefits of independence. Because the, because the Escalade, the transportation, the accommodations, the security, it was all taken care of by the State Department of the United States. Because his island, his country is an ally of the United States, not a territory of the United States. And so when, I, when, I, when Camacho told me that, he said it was one of those moments that he realized sort of our, our position, where he realized like our, like our, hey, half a day governor, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where he realized our position and that we may think of ourselves as being better than everyone else around us in Micronesia, but in, in some ways they are far ahead of us mm. um, because they get to participate in global matters, international matters. They get to speak directly to the United States Guam doesn't necessarily have have that power. I see. All right. How are we on time, guys? Seven minutes. Seven minutes left. Yeah. So one of the other pressing issues that are that's going to be coming up pretty soon um, is the uh, the appeal in the Davis oh, case. Yes. Um, October ten. Is it? Yeah. October ten. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be um, heard in Hawaii. Um, Julian Ogden will be representing Guam along with the UC Berkeley School of Law Dean. Uh, I wanted to pick your brain about that. Again, Julian yeah. Ogden was actually watching earlier. Oh, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Biba. Biba Julian. Biba Par. <laughs> <laughs> um, about the case? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't, did you get a chance to, to watch um, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Anderson's um, sort of update? No. Hearing? No, I did not, unfortunately. Oh. Um, I think... Uh, Guam should win. Uh -huh. Strictly on the merits of the case, Guam should win. Okay. But just because, um, as, uh, what is his name, Chermansky? Chermansky, yeah. As, as, you know, one of the things, one of the things that sort of conservatives like to point out is that Rice versus Cayetano means that every time there's something, it's race. 
So for example, every time a date is used um, to sort of define a community, that's a proxy for race. And that's not actually true. Even if the Supreme Court wrongly, in my opinion, determined that for Rice versus Cayetano, it does not mean that every single time something like that happens. But going to what I was talking about earlier with the Virgin Islands, that's what the Department of Justice says. Mm. That when the Virgin Islands tries to say that you have to have lived here for 20 years before you can become a governor, you're creating a, a form of discrimination against others, right? Against people who come from the United States who may want to move there and become governor. Yeah, yeah. And so um, on the merits, Guam should absolutely win. It is a symbolic, non-voting, non-binding plebiscite. Um, but this is, um, you know, one of the frustrations uh, when I was in the States, one of the, doing my research, one of the focuses uh, is about the Department of Interior, right? So the joke amongst many sort of indigenous people in the United States is that the Department of Interior watches over the parks, the mountains, the lakes, the fish, the Native Americans, and then the Chamorros, right? because our connection to the United States is through the mandate of the Department of Interior. And so the idea is, and so, you know, the idea is that they govern our affairs in some ways. They're the go-to body for information on the territories. But one of the things that they're supposed to do, and they don't necessarily do it that well, is that they're supposed to also be, to use the term, the whisperers. If you're familiar with like animal whisperers, like horse whisperers, so that for most of the United States, they don't know what the hell Guam is, right? For most of the United States, they don't know what the hell the CNMI is, or what the hell American Samoa is, or what the hell the Virgin Islands are. They don't know. And that the Department of Interior is supposed to operate as this government agency which can help them understand the unique history of these places and why they should be treated differently, right? Why they should be treated differently why they shouldn't be treated like Alabama or Arkansas and so on. And that, and that unfortunately, though, they've kind of abdicated that responsibility. Mm -hmm. They don't sort of take up the cause of the territories in cases like this, and especially under the Trump administration, they wouldn't. But when you look at this, you have to think, and this is always the choice for the territories, is the United States government going to continue to colonize the territories, or are they going to start the process of decolonization? And the Davis case is a point like that. Mm. If, they, if the court looks at this and says, you know what, this is a unique case. There's international precedent for this. This is part of the United States' obligation to take care of the people of this island, to support them in their efforts. If the court decides like that, it'll be a good step towards decolonization. Mm. If they decide, no, this is just like Jim Crow laws in the South, and, re and remember... If you've forgotten, some conservative media, ref media referred to me as the KKK, Grand Wizard, the Grand Magalahi of the Chamorro KKK. And so if the, Supreme, if this, excuse me, the, the circuit court decides that, then they continue the colonization. They continue the erasure of Chamorro rights. And so I'm hopeful, but I, I will not give in less hold my breath because mm -hmm. I'd be dead if I was holding my breath waiting for a federal court to decide in favor of, of colonized indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. Dang, man. Very interesting. So, yeah. Uh, I guess that's that, right? How are we? 
Jesus, you guys are you guys are quirking us. All right, two more minutes. I can keep talking. You don't see my lagwa comentos. You don't want to talk, Manny. Uh, I'm just trying to keep it relevant, you know. But like, I don't know. This is this is the free part of the show. Uh, we're gonna cut to uh, radical readings now. Yeah. Yes. What, well, what have you got lined up for us today? Oh, so yeah. for the radical readings. Uh, oh, uh, My Dungeon Shook by James Baldwin. That's mm. what I'll be talking about for Radical Readings today. And then for the Radical History, um, I'm going to be talking about somebody who you wouldn't necessarily think of as being radical in Shemuel history, mm. uh, Magalahi Kapua. Mm. So usually Kapua is thought of as the nowadays the sellout Magalahi. For the last generation, he was the epitome of the Magalahi because he accepted the Spanish first. Um, but we'll be talking about him. There's an interesting sort of theory behind um, him that we will be getting into. No, no teasers, no spoilers. <laughs> only okay. for the ears, Italanga y Higua. Only for the ears of the Hugua supporters. Nice. Get to the get to the second level of the Laddie House, Umbi. The Hugua mm. level. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I. Well, thank you, Manny, for letting me talk the entire time. Yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like uh, <laughs> I, I felt like you wanted me to talk so you wouldn't have to talk hey come on now <laughs> I felt so that's why I was just like okay man I'll save you yeah I'll be your hero baby yeah. <laughs> maybe like um, we should launch an alternate tier where like we have like a, a PlayStation um, live stream ooh uh, playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey yeah. yes you want if, for those of you that want to learn tomorrow in a very nerdy way, then you should watch me and my kids play like a Resident Evil game, and listen to us yell and tomorrow at the game. <laughs> but yeah, I would totally be down to stream. That'd be awesome. To stream Assassin's Creed, I'm so excited mm. for that. All right, and that's it, guys. See you, Smossy. Thank you. Adios, este que otro Oh, wow.